Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Podcast. We are currently in hiatus, and so we have decided to watch some movies. And today's movie is 1971's Vanishing Point, which was one of the movies that was suggested to us on our listeners page back when we did a poll. Gosh, it feels like a long time ago now. But the reason we picked Vanishing Point is because it is touted as one of the original and best car chase movies out there. Now, It's not technically an Australian movie, because it was filmed and set in America. (laughs) Stars American actors in American cars. But at the same time, we just came off a car chase movie. You know, we're going to watch another car chase movie. So, like I said, it was released March 13th, 1971. It was directed by Richard C. Serafian. And the principal actors are Barry Newman, Cleavon Little, and Dean Jagger. The tagline for the movie is, It's the maximum trip at maximum speed. And it is an action crime thriller, rated R, 1 hour, 39 minutes. Can you tell that I have IMDb open on my phone? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 1 hour, 39, that's short. I gotta say, I feel like the especially long movie is kind of something that's a bit more modern. Yes, I agree. Like, back in the the 1970s, you could put out a 93-minute movie... And have everyone be perfectly fine with it. Nowadays, 93 is like, you're barely scratching the surface on some films. Yeah. (laughs) So, this movie has 7.3 out of 10 stars on IMDb. That's really good. I'm expecting some good chase scenes. I mean, it's the 1970s, so everything's going to be, I'm assuming, like muscle cars and dusty environments. Good music, I'm hoping. I don't know how much of a budget they had on this film, but the 1970s had just a generically excellent soundtrack to it. So hopefully they they picked some good ones. Do you have any expectations for this movie? I really don't. I've never heard of this movie. So yeah, I really have nothing. All right. So what we're going to do is we are going to stop recording. We're going to watch the movie. And then we'll pick up in a few moments after we've watched. And you'll be able to hear what we thought about it. We're going to talk about the plot, what happened in the movie, what we thought of the characters. So it'll be... No time for you, but when we come back, it'll be like an hour and a half from now. Name, Kowalski. Occupation, driver. Transporting a supercharged Dodge Challenger from Denver to San Francisco. Background, Medal of Honor in Vietnam. Former stock and bike racer. Former cop, dishonorably discharged. Now he uses speed to get himself up. To get himself gone. Everybody's after Kowalski. Because you think we're queers. For one reason or another. Is there something I can do for you? Well, like what? Like anything you want. Everybody wants a piece of his hide. Maybe kill somebody. Maybe stole that big dude of his. Maybe both. I'll get that son of a... They want to get him and put him away. But they'll have to catch him first. This is yours truly, super, super soul. Directed live transmission from 
the challenge of being chased by the blue, blue meanies on wheels, the vicious traffic squad cars after our lone driver, the super driver of the Golden West. The police numbers are getting closer, closer, closer to our soul hero in his soul mobile. They're gonna kill him, smash him, rape the last American hero. It's the maximum trip at maximum speed. Vanishing point. Wow. Okay. So... I'll say yeah. right off the bat, I did not see that ending coming. <laughs> no! Okay. Now, okay. No. Before we go into this, if you did not sit down and watch this movie, like... Spoilers! So So incredibly. many spoilers, like right off the bat. Because before we can go into anything else, what was up with that ending? Oh! That was... I... Okay, so my first thought is, so throughout the movie, they gave you timestamps and location stamps, yep. which I thought was really helpful because it, the, the terrain out there, it can seem very much the same. So it's kind of hard to tell like progression between states. So I appreciated that they gave us some a little bit of information. Um, I want to go back to the very beginning and see the timestamp for the first time that we saw him come up to with the barricade. Yeah. Versus the second time we saw him come up to the barricade. Yeah. Was it the same timestamp? Because I'm curious. So the first time that he comes up to the barricade, he spins around and then goes goes back out, out of town. And there are three cops coming. So he spins around again. And then he ends up going out into the desert. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a few other little things happen. And then we get that. I think where the title comes from, that vanishing point where he just disappears. Yeah. And they're like, two days earlier, and we got, when, when we start the actual story. Did that happen? And he went back to the barricade to ram into it the second time? Or did he really run into the barricade the first time and they just didn't show it to us until the second time? I'm willing to bet. Okay. Like I said, I, hmm. what? I'm willing to bet that opener that we saw yeah. with... The, the construction vehicles blocking off the road, him turning around, going off to the desert, and like stopping to think for a moment, and then going back onto the road. I feel like him hitting the barricade at the end of the movie is like him approaching that barricade a second time. A second time. Because the crowd was a lot bigger the second time around. It was, and I did notice that, and I thought that was careful maneuvering on the cinematographer's part. To not give away too much of the story the first time we see that town and that barricade. Mm-hmm. Because the story of, you know, Kowalski and his running from the law became such a big thing. But that was revealed to us over time. They didn't want us to know that yeah. right away in the beginning. But that does make sense that he that he escaped the barricade, went out into the desert. He was very thoughtful. Um, I imagine, looking back on it, I think that he was probably thinking about the prospector. Because he walked up to that truck. Yeah. And he put his hand on the truck and he was thinking. I think he was thinking about the prospector. And 
Yeah, but here's the thing, though. And the life that the prospector lead, leads out in the middle of nowhere, which is really the only thing left to him at this point. Maybe, maybe the opener is just a misdirect. Like, maybe I, it never happened to begin with. I, I, I think that is an option, that yeah. it never happened to begin with. All right, well, before we loop back too far or forward or around, <laughs> like, what are your initial reactions of the movie Vanishing Point? I enjoyed it very much. Yeah. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, I thought there were some deeper things mixed in there, but it was still like a journey movie where a man is going from A to B and we think we know what B is. We know what he wants B to be. And then he meets interesting people along the way. Yeah. So it's very, it's like classic like that. It's very like, I I thought of like Wizard of Oz. (laughs) Okay. Where... Where she, you know, she has a goal of where she's going and she's on her way there and she meets people who help her. She meets people who hurt her. Like, it's not the journey she thinks she's taking, but it's the journey that happens. Yeah. And especially with, like, the interesting characters along the way. So, I have to agree with you. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Yeah, it was really good. I guess I didn't necessarily expect to um, because I really didn't know what to think. I knew it was a driving movie, but that was about it. Right. And really, when it comes to the things that I usually like in movies, like characters and dialogue and progression and things like that, I didn't see a lot of that in this movie. But at the same time, the pace at which the movie was directed and put out and the scenery, the cinematography in this movie was was breathtaking. Yes. I mean, they had so much to work with. Yeah. I mean, it kind of helps that that part of the country is really picturesque to begin with. Yes. And it's so open and there's so much of it. Oh my gosh. There's so much of it. Like, it's not quite Lawrence of Arabia as far as sweeping vistas and whatnot. But just the landscapes that they're able to capture with the camera are just so breathtaking. And I might be a little biased considering that I spent so much time yeah. in that area of the country. I didn't realize that it was going to be so that part of the country heavy. Yeah. Because um, I, I really went into it not knowing anything about the movie other than it was a car chase movie. It was recommended to us. So, oh. okay, we're going to watch it. <laughs> when I was looking into this movie, uh, for some reason I thought it was a car chase that would like start in the American South and then go into like the Midwest. But where it started in Colorado and went across Colorado, Utah, Nevada into California, like that's a drastically different area of the country. So let's let's talk about the plot, uh, such as it was. The setup is that Kowalski is a driver. He moves cars from one city to another. Yes. Presumably just for customers that yes. want to purchase these cars. My first question upon meeting him and learning what he does is if it was legal or not. Yes. But throughout the movie, you learned it, it is legal. Oh, perfectly he, he's legal. He's totally on the up and up, except that he has a suspended license, I believe. That's something we find out later on. Yeah, yeah. something you find out later on is he has a suspended license. Um, but yeah, he's he, he starts out not doing anything wrong. I think a lot of Kowalski's trouble is kind of trouble that he makes for himself. Yes. So we start out this movie, he goes and he delivers a car to Colorado and he's 
goes into the shop and the guy who is there attending it is like, hey, Kowalski, this was a great delivery. Hey, maybe take a break. And he's like, no, what's the next car and where does it need to go? And like, really? You don't want to like take a nap or something? Right. He offers him like a weekend off, which is very normal. Like you worked all week, you take the weekend off. Mm -hmm. But no, he just heads right out. He picks up some, some uppers, some speed, and then he's just back on the road. And he makes a bet with his speed dealer that he is going to drive from Colorado from, I want to say Boulder. Denver. Denver. It was Denver. He's going to go from Denver, Colorado to San Francisco, California, starting... About 11.30, I think it is. 11.30 Friday night? Friday night. And he's going to arrive at 3 p.m. Saturday afternoon. Yes. In San Francisco. Now, I was a little bit confused about... Why he said 3 p.m. Because he said 3 p.m. before he made the bet with his dealer. He told the uh, his boss guy, I can't stay. I got to be in San Francisco at 3 p.m. tomorrow. Yeah, and that's not something that the attendant that he picked the car no. up from actually said. The car said. itself doesn't need to be in San Francisco till Monday. So, I, and they never explain why Kowalski himself said... I need to be in San Francisco at 3 p.m. I think it might have been just him wanting to be in San Francisco by 3 p.m. That it was a challenge. That he would have to drive well to accomplish that. Because it's just outside. um, As soon as I heard like these places and time frames, I googled it. So getting getting from Denver to San Francisco, I think, was about 19 hours. Mm -hmm. And he gave himself 15 hours. Right. So... He would have to drive really, really well, and it would be a challenge for him. And I think that's the only reason he needed to be in San Francisco at 3 p.m. Yeah, and it really doesn't start to be a problem until, I think he's still in Colorado. He might be in Utah. I'm pretty sure he's in Utah before a couple of motorcycle cops try and stop him. Yeah. And, of course, he doesn't want to stop because he's got a schedule to keep. And so he just keeps going. And this tips off a pursuit that goes all through Utah, all through Nevada, into California. It's pretty much one of the major things in this movie is the fact that the police want to stop him because he won't stop for them. Right. And I think we decided that the the motorcycle cops wanted to pull him over because he was speeding. Yeah. That, I mean, I think you and I have both driven out in that type of area. Um, I've spent a little bit of time in Utah. You've spent quite a bit of time in Nevada. Um, There are many roads out there where there's either no speed limit or the speed limit is really, really high. Mm -hmm. Like 75 is low because there's just nothing out there. Yeah. So, like, how fast was he going? Okay. To make the cops want to pull him over. Okay. And we can see him driving. He's driving safe. It's not like he's driving recklessly. Well, the road he was driving on had a cliff on one side and a river on the other side. Okay. And it's I'll not like that. it was a it's not like it was a desert road. I just think he wasn't driving recklessly. Yeah. He may have been driving over the speed limit, but even like in our area of the country, cops aren't gonna pull you over for going over the speed limit. They're gonna pull you over for going dangerously over the speed limit. Well, we don't know how fast he was going. But he, but we could see him driving. He wasn't driving dangerously. I can't, I can't make excuses for the highway patrol. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know exactly why they wanted to pull him over. But like, yep. suffice it to say, they wanted him to pull over, and he did not want to pull over. And so this is what yeah, this is off what the, the entire movie is based on. It, this, I mean, it's such a little thing that 
they wanted him to pull over. He didn't want to. So, they, boom, we have a movie. Yeah. And over the course of the movie, we learn more about the driver, Kowalski. Yeah. Like, all we get is his name initially. And it's not until later on, like you mentioned, that we find out that he's driving on a suspended license. Yeah. Which is something that they would have stopped him for had they pulled him over. Yes. So, it explains he why he trouble. didn't stop, actually. Yeah. But, but honestly, I don't think that's why he didn't stop. I think he didn't stop because he needed to be in San Francisco by 3 o'clock. It's, it's kind of ridiculous, that time limit that he placed on himself. Because, yeah, he would have had to shave four hours off of a projected drive time. Yeah. Like, I know I like to shave time off of, you know, ETAs. But, but I'm talking, talking about, 20 like, minutes. 20 minutes. I'm not talking about four hours. Right. Over hundreds of miles. And, I mean, at, th- at some point, he abandons roads altogether. I, there's a lot of issues, geography-wise, about the route that he takes from Denver I, to San Francisco. I think though. so. Like, <laughs> we might as well talk about it. So, if, if you were looking at MapQuest, or Google Maps, or whatever the thing that I'm trying to think of in the top of my head is, you're going to go from Denver, you're going to go up past Salt Lake, and you're going to take 80 pretty much across Nevada, go through Reno into California, through Sacramento into San Francisco. Yeah, the problem with that route is that you go through at least a couple of big cities. Um, You're going to hit traffic going through Salt Lake, and you're going to hit even more traffic going through Sacramento. Yeah, but that's what beltways are for. Yeah, but even the beltways get traffic-y. Yeah, but nowhere near as bad as going... Like, let's let's take Boston, for instance. If you take 90... Five up through Boston. It's going to be a lot slower than if you take 495 around Boston. Yeah, 495 takes you way out of the way. But for the most part, it's not going to be quite as bad as going straight through the city. Yes, but this is nearly 50 years ago. There weren't as many beltways. I guess. I don't know. I don't know the particulars. Yeah, I think we take for granted how much... Like, restricted access, high-speed highways we have nowadays. Mm -hmm. I don't think they had as many back then. I mean, they've just always been there for us, but they had to be built at some point. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure he had as many highway options available to him as we would have now. Yeah, it's. I just find it kind of ridiculous that he ends up... He abandons... You're right. He abandons roads altogether. And he goes through Death Valley. Like, Death Valley is not close to San Francisco at all. Like... You don't even need to know geography very well to tell that if you are starting in Denver and you want to get to San Francisco, you don't go down by Vegas. Right. You don't go through Tonopah. Like, at one point, they specifically mentioned he's heading towards Tonopah, and that is the exact wrong direction that he wants to be going. Yeah. He does also mention at one point in the... When he's talking to the prospector, he says, I'm lost. Mm-hmm. So... Well, that's because he drove off into the desert. Right. So who knows, like, how how lost he was, how long he'd been lost, how many miles he was off course. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's why there is that, like, big deviation where he dips way down south. It's because he got lost. Because yeah. he abandoned roads. <laughs> Not a good plan. Not a good plan. So one thing that's really nice about this movie is that as Kowalski is making this ride, we're slowly learning more and more about the man. Yes. Like, his past. Because at the beginning of the movie, all we know is his name. Yes. And so over the course of the movie, let's see, I'm going off the, the Wikipedia plot summary, so that way I can have a little, little bit of structure here. 
So he's a Medal of Honor Vietnam War veteran. He's a former race car and motorcycle driver. He's also a former police officer who was dishonorably discharged in retaliation for preventing his partner from raping a young woman. And he's haunted by the surfing death of his girlfriend, Vera. And so... According to Wikipedia, he exists off of, you know, adrenaline. Adrenaline. Yeah, I I caught that pretty quick that he was an adrenaline junkie. Mm-hmm. And he's just doing this whole thing for kicks. Yeah. Yeah. I like, specifically, that Kowalski is not a bad guy. Yes. Like... He goes out of his way to make sure that people that he purposely runs off the road are okay. Yeah. Like, that's one of the things that definitely stood out to me first and foremost... First when he runs the motorcycles off the road, later in the movie when the Jaguar that was racing Mm -hmm. him goes off the road. If someone crashes, he'll stop and he'll get out of the car to make sure they're okay. He won't stop and help. He'll just make sure they're okay. And he also stops and picks up those, the hitchhikers. They turn out to be carjackers. (laughs) That's later on though. Yeah. So, but he's not, he's not a villain. And we learn from no. the poli- him being a police officer flashback that like he he's is a good guy. A good guy. I mean, letting your partner rough someone up for information is one thing, but at least he has his limits, right? Like he didn't allow his partner to rape that woman, which I really loved that callback. Mm-hmm. So there's a character called the Nude Writer that he comes across fairly late in the movie. Yeah. We've already seen the flashback of him as a cop. Preventing the rape of this young woman by his partner in the backseat of his car. Turns out the new writer is that young woman. Is it? I'm not sure. You um, really don't think it is? Because I really think it is. But the synopsis doesn't make that connection? Not really. Um, okay, I'm going to make that connection. I'm going to say that's the way it is. I'm going to scroll through, see if I can find... Um, I wonder... Because the, the writer was Gilda Texter. Yeah. So the nude writer was Gilda Texter. I'm going to see if the woman in the backseat of the if she's she's not listed in the credits at all the woman in the backseat but she was a young girl she was i mean she was certainly a teenager i would peg her at maybe 15 or 16 so you think it's the same person i think it's just someone that that knew that knew about it because if he's a good cop like if he's a hero cop that was disgraced and whatnot there are some people that would latch on to that in the news and she strikes me as that type of person more so than the same person because that's incredibly coincidental. Well, I think it is incredibly coincidental. I, I, I think, yeah, I think that coincidence did happen. Yeah? Yeah. I'm not so sure. All right. But we'll agree to disagree there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, keeping up with the plot summary on Wikipedia. So, he runs into the motorcycle, cops, and then as he's going... Along, there's this guy in a Jaguar E-type convertible that pulls up next to Kowalski and he wants to race. They're in the middle of the highway and this guy just out of nowhere just shows up yeah. and wants to race. I guess that's I, I guess that's a thing. I mean, you got a nice car that you think is fast. He, he obviously went out for that purpose because he's wearing a helmet. Yeah. So he was in, you know, he was in that mood. He wanted to race. So he went out for a ride looking for a race. Mm. So is that a thing? That, like, people really do in real life? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure of it. I mean, have fast car, will race, but... Right. The the fact that this guy just showed up out of nowhere, it was an interesting vignette. Like, because each one of these encounters is yes. its own little vignette. Yes. And so... They don't connect to each other 
Oftentimes, they have no bearing on the plot whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But the way this guy was racing, he was incredibly aggressive. Yeah, he was. Okay, so he's got this beautiful jaguar. Yeah. Okay? And, like, almost right away, he bumps into Kowalski's charger. Mm-hmm. Like, that, why did you do that? Yeah. <laughs> like, you can have an aggressive race and not do that. Mm-hmm. It just seems like a really foolish move. And then as they're racing, like, they're coming up on this really narrow bridge. Yeah, the very definition of a narrow bridge. Which, like, not only is it a narrow bridge, but there are, like, high metal walls on either side. Yeah. And it kind of reminded me of the bridge from Mad Max when he runs the bikies off the road. And I specifically thought that one of them was going to go off the side of this bridge into the the water down below right which is technically what happens yes it's just not the same way right right because the jaguar's tire blows out and then he loses control and kind of launches off an embankment yeah into the river and he it, i mean it was quick and there was a lot of dirt in the air mm-hmm. but he the jaguar flips over and it looks like it just breaks into two pieces yeah it like just in midair wrecked. it is just now in two pieces and it's the kind of thing where you're looking at it and you're like Oh no, that guy is so dead, but... Yeah, but Kowalski pulls over, gets out, makes sure that the guy's okay. Yeah, he runs over to the edge and he looks down in the river and that dude, right red helmet, just gets out of the car. Like nothing. Like it's... It's it's funny because Kowalski, yeah, he jogs back to his car, jumps in and... Yep, and the cops are not far behind him. So we get a little bit of a callback to this guy later in the movie where the cops are talking about... Yeah. How they found the E-Type driver, but he doesn't want to press charges, probably because he was, knows that mm-hmm. racing is not necessarily something the cops would right. smile upon. I like the mechanic of the, the the exposition mechanic of transitioning from state to state. Mm-hmm. As Kowalski is progressing, different um, they're in different jurisdictions, so they have to pass along the information. So we get these radio conversations... Passing along information. So we, you know, we get caught up with what's going on. And so we get that exposition that we need. That's where we find out people aren't pressing charges. We find out, we, in one conversation, we find out that really all he's wanted for is reckless driving and not mm. pulling over. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we find out little bits of information and then make it really, like, organic to the story. Yeah, I feel like the Nevada State Police are really lax when it comes to this guy because as he's coming into the state, Utah and Colorado are like, you got to stop this guy. you got to stop him. And Nevada's like, well, why? And right. then they hear why and they're like, like well, you know, he's just yeah, so... Like, okay, we're going to get him because... It's like, we'll keep an eye out for him, but we're not going to chase after him that specifically. Yeah. I think what changes is those two cops. One of whom, one of his name is Charlie. I didn't catch the name of the other one. And I saw it on IMDb. I got it. So Charlie Scott and Collins. We don't get a first name. His last name is Collins. So Scott and Collins are a pair of highway patrolmen. They're pretty much the Rupe and Charlie of this movie. Yeah, they really are. Um, and they're hanging out um, on Highway 80. That's really all we know about their location, but it does tell us something about about kind of where we're at. Um, and I think they are those two are the big motivators to how big a deal Nevada makes over Kowalski, because a lot of the intensifying action happens in Nevada. Mm-hmm. And these two seem to be like in every police interaction in Nevada, one of them is there. Yeah. So they get 
I think they get embarrassed by him. Oh, yeah, because they take he, part like, in a pretty gnarly crash. Yes. Like, and like rolling yeah. into the ditch. And one of them pops right. The other one is really dazed. But, yeah, yeah they hop in another police car that shows up. And, and they keep going. Go and yeah. was it them in the helicopter? I think one of them was in the helicopter. Yeah, I think they split up. But I think those two were a lot of the motivator for how big a deal it became in Nevada. Yeah. Because they were embarrassed. Mm-hmm. Another thing about the ramping up in Nevada is the DJ. Uh, yes, Super Soul from KOW. <laughs> broadcasting, according to Wikipedia, from Goldfield, Nevada. So he is a blind guy. Yep. And he is played the by, radio DJ. Played by Cleavon Little. Yes. Who, you re- you said, oh, who I recognize that name. I recognize the name, but I'm not really good with faces and names putting them together. Yeah. Which is why I love IMDb so much. Yeah. Cleavon Little is the guy who played the sheriff in Blazing Saddles. Yes. But here he is, like I said, super soul. And he kind of picks up on the story of this driver going across these states. And he just kind of takes it and runs with it. Yeah. I thought that was interesting because when we first introduced the, the, uh, the paracops, Scott and Collins, they were listening to... Super Soul on the radio, and they're like, how does he get all this information? One of them replies, well, he's listening to the police scanner. Yeah. And they they talk about it for a few moments, intimating that that, that's illegal. And that, I kind of bumped at that. I'm like, that's not illegal, is it? I mean, people do that all the time, right? You just, it's a frequency. It's out there. Mm. If you have a receiver that receives a frequency, that's not illegal. I'm sure. Maybe that's like Americanism, like. We get to do things, we get to do whatever we want because we're Americans. I don't know. I'm pretty sure there's some sort of regulation out there about listening to police frequencies and then just regurgitating that information to the public. Because one of the things of why they can't stop Super Soul from doing that is because he's not literally saying word for word everything that comes over to the scanner. He's just kind of intimating it. Right. He's smart about how he's communicating and what he's putting out there. So they can't like really prove anything. Yeah. Yeah. So so remember before this movie, I said, this is probably going to have a really awesome soundtrack. Yes. This movie had an amazing soundtrack. Yes. As soon as the, the uh, radio station came into play, I'm like, yes, it's going to have a good soundtrack. Yeah. I wouldn't say that I know I recognized a lot of the music, but oh, no, all of it all. was good. But it was good. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that was kind of weird about the character of Super Soul is he would talk into the radio as if he was talking to Kowalski. And for most of the movie, you get the sense that like he's just talking into the ether. He's just kind of assuming that Kowalski would be listening to his radio station. But there's one point in the movie yes, where Kowalski starts talking back to the radio. Yes. And the way they edit it, they're having a conversation. And it's weird because you know that Super Soul can't hear him. Right. Like, you know for a fact. That's not the case. But... But I had to ask. I'm like, they're not actually talking to each other, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It was just generic enough conversation that it worked. And I thought it was done really well. Mm Mm-hmm. They didn't yeah. cheat and make the conversation specific and just ask us to believe this. It was generic enough that it really could be going back and forth like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like how Super Soul kind of latches on to the, this news story. This lone driver driving across America and the cops want to stop him. And so he starts talking about how he's you know the last great American hero and he's standing yeah. up to the police and everything. And uh-huh. that... 
thought that was kind of a jump. Like it, it, it's funny because it's just you know he's taking this idea and he's just making it really bigger than it needs to be. Yeah, he is. Because Kowalski definitely doesn't see himself that way. He's just doing a job. Right. He's moving car from Denver to San Francisco, and he's just going to deliver the car. I mean, and he's going to do it in an extreme way because he wants to, you know, get his rise up. But at the same time, the way Super Soul paints him, he's like a folk hero. Yeah, he's like a freedom fighter. Mm -hmm. And that kind of gets Super Soul in trouble. It does. Like, there's a lot of people that, like, start gathering around the radio station and kind of listening from the street outside. Yeah, they're standing outside the radio station, the booth has windows out onto, like, the main street of the town. And you see it little by little. They were very subtle about it. Like, just at first there was only, like, two people standing out there with little radios in their hands until, you know, a few more and a few more until there was a big crowd. Mm-hmm. And there were, I thought that was done really well. But I also think it's kind of awkward. If I'm listening to, you know, if there's something big going on, and I'm listening to the radio to keep up to date on how things are happening. I'm not going to the radio station. Yeah, I think that must I'm be a gonna, small town thing. It must be a small town thing. I'm going to stay home. Yeah. And out of the way. And yeah, I thought that was kind of weird. But it must be a small town thing. Yeah. And, a, you know, it's a very local DJ. You know, everybody knows him. Oh, and he's incredible. Like his personality on the air. Yeah. It's just spectacular. It really is. Yeah. And I like the, the the little interplay between him and his engineer. Yep. Who you recognize. Oh, it's um John Amos. Uh, let me double check my Sharon's first name right. Yeah, John Amos. Took me a little while to recognize him, which I'm a little ashamed of. So John Amos um, also plays uh, Colonel Fitzwallis. Colonel Fitzwallis? Now I gotta look it up. Hold on one second. I don't want to give him the wrong title because, you know, worked hard for that title. Okay, he plays... Doesn't give him his title. Okay, he plays Percy Fitzwallis in The West Wing. And anybody who knows The West Wing knows he is one of the best characters. He... Oh, shoot. What's his position? Is he the national security advisor to the president? Something like that? Um, And so you only see him in episodes where there's big, like, global emergencies happening and whatnot. Most of his time is spent, like, in the Situation Room. Um, But he's got this wonderful sense of humor and it's just a fantastic character so i was really excited when i recognized him much younger yeah than i'm used to seeing him okay. um before we go too far into that storyline though the plot synopsis mentions a couple of more interactions that kowalski has so after he goes off into the desert he gets lost and he runs into the uh the old prospector who is played by dean jagger yes who you recognize who i also recognized um is the general from White Christmas. Which I I didn't see it, but then again, I haven't watched White Christmas near as much. Yeah, it's one of my it's one of my favorite movies. Yeah. So I've seen it a lot. Um it wasn't his appearance, it was his voice. Yeah. When I was listening to him talk, I'm like, I know that voice, but I couldn't peg where I knew it. Um so I had to look it up. He looks so drastically different. <laughs> He's um older now in this movie. And he's lost a lot of weight. Yeah. In White Christmas, he was like, just burlier. Yeah. You know, like an army man. Like a bit more broad, like yeah. a general would be. Yes, exactly. So this this was a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. I, I gotta say, I like Kowalski running into the 
prospector. It was really random because it happened. He was driving through the desert. Mm-hmm. He had a blowout. He had to stop to change his tire. Absolutely. And then as he's putting the flat tire into the trunk, there's a rattlesnake that's there kind of between him and the position he would need to be in to put the tire in the trunk. And out of nowhere, Dean Jagger just comes up and says, oh, wait, no, hold on. I got this. And so he grabs the snake, puts it in a basket, and then asks Kowalski for a ride because he's got to deliver these snakes somewhere. Yeah. So I have a question about the ride issue. Mm -hmm. So he talks about his truck a little bit. I got the sense that the truck had been broken down for a long time. So the prospector has his truck like hidden in the brush and yeah. so he he knows how to like hide his stuff in the desert yeah and later on in that scene there is a helicopter that comes over and they see they the truck and the, the people truck. in the helicopter are like oh that looks like a derelict it's probably been there since the depression and so yeah you get the sense that it is an old truck i mean i'm not saying anything was like mystical happening though like and he's like a mirage or something coming out of the desert like i'm pretty sure he just had an old truck Right, but you think it had just recently broken down. Right. I I don't know, I just got the sense that it broke down a while ago. Yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, that wouldn't make any sense. It really wouldn't. The spirit of the old snake charmer wandering around the desert. (laughs) It was kind of like that. Like, that whole thing with the the snake charmer, and he he, um, had a bunch of snakes. He had uh, seven or eight snakes in that Mm -hmm. basket. And he goes to uh, this little, like, spiritualist group that are hanging out in the desert. Yeah. Trades with them. And this is, like, how he subsists. That whole thing was very surreal. I gotta say, the scene where Kowalski and the Snake Charmer go to these faith healers in the middle of the desert, that was a very long scene. It was. And I think they made it so that they could show off the singers. Because it was a group of people surrounding a stage and the people on the stage were singing. Yes. And it was a group of faith healers. And I feel like... They spent a lot of time around those faith healers just because they had that right. band that was playing the music. Yes. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, the, the faith healers really didn't end up doing much more. No. And did you find it weird that, that so the head guy, the head faith healer, um, was a little upset. Very squirrely about the idea of an outsider. Right. No, isn't that like, I mean, aren't most religions like open arms welcoming is Most like, normal religions are. Right. I think the more culty ones are a little bit more squirrely about random outsiders. Yeah. So you and got a culty vibe from them. I definitely got a little bit of a culty vibe because they were in the middle of the desert singing songs, clapping hands, and they trade goods to a guy who brings them snakes so that they can do faith healing stuff. It's like, I don't, I don't know. The whole it's thing was like really weird. It's a little snake oil salesman hitting on the head. Yeah. <laughs> But it tur- I got more of a, like, Burning Man vibe out of them. Yeah? Yeah, like, let's gather in this random spot to do whatever. Yeah. And um, their whatever is to have this little, like, revival. I'm not really quite meeting. sure what to think yeah, about we, the whole thing. We really didn't get very much information on them at all, except that they weren't welcoming. Yeah. Which was weird. But the important thing is that... Kowalski gets more gas from them. Yes. And continues on his way. Which they were very not stingy about. No. The prospector's like, oh, and he needs gas. And the the guy, the head faith healer guy, um, was like, okay, here you go. <laughs> Here's and your then, gas, now go away. Right. Like, 
I don't know. Maybe my head is so deep into Mad Max where fuel is so precious Mm -hmm. and is the source of a lot of conflict. And even though the settings in these two movies, you know, kind of being out in the desert are similar. Like visually similar. Visually similar. That this group of faith healers could not possibly care any less about this gasoline. Mm -hmm. Even though running out of gasoline could kill them. I gotta but say, they still give it away freely. Given going back to the idea of gasoline, I like that they treat gasoline as a commodity, not something that is just infinite. Like he doesn't have a gas tank that is right. big enough to get him from point A to point B. Right. He actually has to stop on two or three different occasions yep. to fill up. And I think it's the first time he stops, it's at a fill-up station, and there's a young blonde woman that reminds him of... Vera. Of his girlfriend who died as a surfer in a surfing accident, which was really nonspecific. Yeah, I kind of wish they'd made a bigger deal about about Vera. Yeah, because they mention her later on. Yeah, they like put her in the paper you know, and like tell her story in the paper, but they don't tell us her story. We get a few flashbacks, a little bit about their relationship, um... I believe it was a time while he was a cop. Yeah, because she was into drugs and surfing, and he yeah. was a cop. And, and so she pointed out like the irony in that. There was that tension there. Yeah. But the way they showed her, like them being together and her talking about, oh, I'm going to go off into the waves, and then she kind of just runs towards the ocean, and then all we see from there is just a surfboard being washed ashore, and it was yeah. very ethereal, as if she was never really there at all. Huh. Like she was it reminds sort of me of spirit. It reminds me of the opening scene where he turns away from the barricade and he ends up out on the road and his car just vanishes. Yeah. It's like it was never there at There's all. There's a lot in this movie where it's like, are you really sure you're, what's happening is what's happening? Yeah. 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 And that whole idea of taking what your expectations are and flipping them. Right. You know. That's certainly one thing that makes a good plot. Mm-hmm. I just wish that we had gotten a little bit more about Vera. Because it was obviously, we got enough to know that it was a big part of his life, um, but not in, you know, the two-day period that we get to see. I'm actually not that bothered that we don't get more about Kowalski and the people from his past, specifically because what the filmmakers wanted to do here was tell us about the journey. Because I kind of feel like his drive... From Colorado to California. And that point at the end that he reaches at the end of the movie where he just explodes. Yeah. Like, that's his vanishing point. Like, he's been existing, 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 and he just gets to that point where he's just... done. Boom. Gone. Okay. Um, But going back to that idea of upsetting your expectations, after he gets the fuel from the faith healers, he runs into the couple pushing the car along the highway with the just married sign. Yes. So... These are two 1971 homosexuals. So one of them is wearing a satiny pink blouse and white pants, and the other one is just kind of drab, kind of like tan head to toe. Yeah, but like he's kind of a Danny DeVito shaped. <laughs> yes, thing. I found it very type, stereotyped. Which well, I, in the seventies, I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what you get in the seventies. I say they were they were coded Hollywood homosexual yes. for sure. And the the more effeminate one in the pink and silk, he talked very soft and very like he wanted to sound feminine. Yeah, and this is what he thinks sounds feminine. <laughs> and it was oh it was oh it was just so stereotype. I just yeah. 
Yeah, kind of had a hard time with it. Like, but the, oh my gosh! But the way they flipped the switch yeah, is that they okay, made they made this couple into carjackers. Yes, like that's their shtick. Yep. They, he all of a sudden pulls a gun out of. I don't know like, where he got that uh, gun from. I love the whole thing. It's like it's, it's like stick up. It's like what do you? It's like you're so brooding and quiet. And Kowalski's like, well, maybe that's just how I am. And he's like, well, why are you laughing? And Kowalski's like, I'm I'm literally not laughing no. at all. He's no, you're laughing on the inside because you think we're homosexuals. And I, and, and, and I'm, like, I'm like, there's no but thing. You are homosexuals. You are homosexuals. Read the script. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you see the sign on the back of your car? Yeah. Just married? Although, who knows if that was actually their car? I gotta say, that might be... They could have jacked it. The jacked car. Yeah. But I love that they pull a gun on him, and Kowalski being an ex-cop, like, he starts throwing punches, and he literally pulls to the side of the road, throws them out of his car. Yeah. Without even having to leave the driver's seat. Yep. <laughs> so... There's a there's a bit of a callback to them too later at the police headquarters where yep. they're like oh yeah we picked up a couple of men uh, I think no it was um it was Super Soul that was talking about how the cops picked up a couple of men on the side of the road that had been beaten up had been beaten up that they didn't want to press charges yeah nobody wants to press charges because because <laughs> they weren't necessarily doing something legal to begin with either so yeah one of the one of the more distressing parts in the movie comes after the scene with the carjackers. Where a bunch of good old boys roll up in a pickup truck and they trash the radio station. Yes. Question for you. The head white guy. Yeah. Was that the cop? Was that um, Charlie Ac- Scott? According to one of the, or according to the Wikipedia article, they describe the group as being read, led by a vengeful off-duty highway patrolman. I think it's Charlie Scott. I think it's, yeah. I thought so at the time and now mm-hmm. I super think so. That he was... I embarrassed. I think a lot of this movie was motivated by the embarrassment of Charlie Scott. Yeah. Yeah. One of those guys that just, he's got his pride and how dare someone insult him. Right. And now it's being hurt again by this black guy. So we're going to go take care of him. Yeah. And there's a lot of phrasing and words used that are very 70s. And definitely not okay anymore. <laughs> no. It you're, it was a very distressing scene. And so, okay, so the group goes in how many guys do you think? Maybe seven, right? Oh, easily. Yeah. So they rush the radio station. They beat up the engineer, which I got to say, it takes balls to, pe- to beat up Percy Fitzwallace. Because yeah. you just don't do that. We never see him again. No. It's it kind of know. assumed that he was killed or something Yeah, like we that. don't know if he's dead or if he's just in the hospital I think it's safe to assume that he's dead. Yeah. But they storm the radio station and then they force Soul... Super Soul. Super Soul to pretty much get on the radio and encourage Kowalski to just go for the border. Yeah. And right about this time, Kowalski runs into this guy on a motorcycle. Uh, I think his character name is Angel. Yeah. But he rides up alongside... Kowalski and they're talking back and forth. Okay, every instance of someone on a motorcycle in this movie talking to Kowalski through an open window, I have a hard time getting on board with that because wind noise is very loud. Yeah. Engines are very loud and they're right. just carrying on conversations. Yeah, it's point probably like a normal style. conversation. So Kowalski asks Angel if he has any uppers. Yeah, any speed because he's getting low from the yeah, which I speed think... that he got. I have an issue with that. I, I, I thought 
that he had enough speed to get him the entire weekend. Yeah. You know, we, we don't know how much he got from the dealer. <coughs> but at that point, it had only been like 24 hours. Mm-hmm. So I think he's popping him too much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Angel says, yeah, I got some back at my place about a mile back. Yeah. So they head that way. That's where we need, meet the nude biker. Yep. That I think is the same girl and you don't. It's just, and it's crazy because they show up at the place and Angel's like, oh yeah, I got the speed inside. He goes to get the bottle and as Kowalski is waiting outside, there's just this woman riding a motorcycle. Yeah. Buck naked. Yep. Like around just, the property. Yeah, just like doodling around the yard. Yeah. Which, okay, I, as soon as she came on screen, I was like, you got to dress for the crash, not the ride. <laughs> and there's a lot of rocks and bramble and things like that. And well, she's, she's not going shoes. fast. She's not going fast. No. Like, how is she even, like, staying up? She's, she's like, barely moving. Yeah. They did seem to kind of shoot her in slow motion, though. But yeah. even so. Well, I mean... It was very Lady Godiva-esque. Like, she's yeah. got this long blonde hair that sometimes is hiding things, sometimes is not hiding things. Mm-hmm. And she's just, yeah, going with the wind in her hair and, yeah, perfect slow-mo scene. Yeah. And it's so out of the blue. But then again, like, they're middle of the desert hippies that sell drugs. I mean... Right. What, what, you, what good are pants in that situation? Yeah. So, they stop, he gets the drugs, and then That's they're listening they hear to on the, the radio... radio. And Super Soul sounds, like, different somehow. Yeah, which actually I didn't pick up on. Like, when you think about how Super Soul talks before the radio station is attacked... Yeah, he's very animated. Yeah, and as he's talking here, it's very, like... You get the sense that he's under duress, and Angel and Kowalski are standing there listening, and then Angel calls over this nude biker. I don't even think she has a name. No, her... In IMDb, she's nude biker. So they call her over, and she's listening, and she's like, oh yeah, he sounds... He sounds different here, and so Angel gets the idea of going to the border to kind of check what's in store. Yeah. And there is, like, a huge roadblock, like, five, six cars all together that are going to try and keep Kowalski from getting over the border. And so Angel gets back, and he gets back to his house, and he, like, doesn't even stop to park his motorcycle. He just kind of lets it fall. Dumps it in the sand. So... He's got this brilliant idea, which I got such a kick out of. He found a like little motorbike yep. with a headlamp, and then he found an old like siren, like an old like, hand crank siren. Yeah. And they strapped the little motorbike onto the roof, put a gel or something over the front headlight, and then as they're driving down the road, they got the red headlight going on top of the car. He's got the hand crank siren. Yep. And this roadblock thinks it's a police officer that's driving at them. And so they say, oh, it's police. It's police. Move out of the way. So they get all the cars out of the way. And he just speeds right through. Yeah. I Okay. That was awesome that they, that they really thought it was a cop. So they moved out of the way. But I also appreciate that as soon as he was like close enough, they could actually see the car. They're like, it's him. And they all get in the car and... Well, it was a complete cluster. Oh, like, yeah. they're hitting each other. They're like, hey, that's my car. That was great. And, like, it's a complete mess. But they realize their mistake, like, as soon as they possibly could, they realize their mistake. They still lose him, though. They still because lose him. Because it's not that far past the border where Angel gets out and he reclaims his bike and his siren yeah. and heads back to and his house. And heads back to his house. Um, now, according to the plot summary here, by the point that he gets across the border and he drops off Angel... That's when he goes to the payphone and he calls his dealer. His it's dealer, yeah. Apparently Saturday at seven twelve, so he's already like four hours past okay. his goal. I love that he called his dealer, the guy he made the bet with, yeah. to say, "Hey, I lost the bet. So yeah. when you know when I see you again, yeah, 
I owe you. Or maybe next time we'll go double or nothing. Like, he, again, he's not a bad person. He follows through on this bet that he made. Mm-hmm. And as he's calling the dealer and, and talking to him, a little bit after that, we see the California Highway Patrol, which is way more sophisticated than the any of the other states that we've seen <laughs> so far. They've got a light-up wall, and they've got operators all over the room, like, putting lights on things oh, and yeah. coordinating, and it's crazy. So they figure they're going to stop this guy in a little town called Cisco, which is where we started the movie. Which yes. is where the uh, trucks rumbled in, and they set up a roadblock. And so on Sunday morning, they set up the roadblock, and Super Soul gets back on the radio and is talking about all this stuff. And this is where we get the the final showdown of Kowalski thundering down the road. This is where he talks to Super Soul on the radio. This is yep. We see this little light headed blinking on the highway patrol thing towards Cisco, and it just ends in this. Yeah, and we are expecting him to turn around. Before the blockade. Yeah, we were expecting the beginning of the movie to be repeated. Yes. And to see what happened after that. I thought he was going to get away. I thought this was going to be his vanishing point where he vanishes off and no one ever sees him again. Mm-hmm. Nope. Instead, he crashes at he high drives speed. headlong into the barricade. Yes. Great. Huge explosion. Oh, my gosh. There were so many people watching. who were just standing there watching this explosion. Yeah. Like, the entire town had come out to see what was going to happen when he reached the barricade. Yeah. It's and insane, because this ending is... he just hits it. Totally unexpected. It, my jaw hit the floor. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, the insane part is, is they set us up to expect one thing, and then just crumpled it up, threw it out, and replaced it with just an explosion. Yes. It's insane. And um, the people take it really calmly. Yeah. Like, nobody is like... There's no, like, panic. People kind of mill closer in. There's some fire hoses. You bet people are disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, that was quick. All right. Um, But, I mean, what struck me about that scene and how, like, normal everybody seemed to be behaving is there were a lot of cops on the scene. Yeah. Because they purposely set up this barricade. Why weren't the cops clearing out this crime scene? This is now a crime scene. Shouldn't they have been, like, establishing a perimeter? I wouldn't necessarily call it a crime scene, but they definitely should be establishing a perimeter because it's the scene of an accident. Like, they need to put out the fire. They need to make sure that, you know, if anyone was hurt that they're taken care of, they need to find if Kowalski survived. Um, Kowalski was played by an actor named Barry Newman, who, I gotta say, not super familiar with Barry Newman as an actor. No. But we definitely agree that he's got some Dustin Hoffman oh, yeah. esque looks. Oh yeah. Like really strong. Um there were some shots where I could have sworn it was Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. Yeah. Um I don't know much else about him. I'm gonna see if I can I've got look him up real quick. Barry Newman. He is a Boston native. Oh. Uh he's got a he's got a couple of He's done some episode work mm-hmm. and um, movies. Not a ton, but but a good amount. Let's see. 78 years old. Oh. Has not died yet. Nope. Nope. <laughs> yeah, born November 7th, 1938 in Boston, Massachusetts. We actually don't get a lot of dialogue from him. There's not a lot no. of speaking in this movie, necessarily. Nope. I mean, we hear a lot more from Super Soul than we really hear from anybody else. Yes, which I appreciate because it was appropriate. Of course, we hear the most from Super Soul because he's a radio DJ. That's yeah. his job to talk. 
you know, we don't hear a lot from Kowalski because he spends most of the movie alone. Mm-hmm. I'm just flicking through his uh, IMDb if there's anything that like, stands out or that I've even heard of. Not really. So let's take a look at some user reviews from IMDb. So I'm on the IMDb app. And when you click on user reviews, the first one is a 10 out of 10 stars review. Several paragraphs. <laughs> several paragraphs. Okay, so they loved this movie. Yeah. The the first several on the list are all just really high reviews. Um, a lot of people talking about, you know, a dirge for dying America. Look back on your life torn asunder, then throw it into third gear and floor it. Like, it's a lot of, like, the open road is freedom. Yeah. And I feel like that's definitely a huge theme yes. in this movie. Um, so kind of bringing it all back around to Mad Max, the the very opening scene where we, we see them setting up the barricade, everything is very calm and orderly. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Things seem to happen exactly how the cops want them to happen. Mm-hmm. Even when he turns around, heads back out of town, there are three cops already coming at him. Yeah. And they're like slowly pinning him in. It struck me that this is what the Knight Rider chase should have been. Oh, absolutely. If they, if the MFP had had, um, they probably didn't have the means I kind of look at the barricade that they set up like this is what would have happened if the MFP had designated the Knight Rider chase a Code 44 barricade necessary. Like they would have found the equipment to block off the road. They would have had the other interceptors behind. They would have boxed them in. Would have been fine. Well, it would have been better. (laughs) Right. And heck, you never know. It might have ended in the exact same way. Mm -hmm. He was a terminal psychotic. So maybe he would have rammed into the barricade as well. Which, it would have been unfortunate because they would have lost the car, but they lose the car anyway. Right, they lose the car anyways. And really, if only the Knight Rider had exploded into a barricade, at least then they wouldn't have lost March Hare and Big Bopper. Right. Because those cars needed to be fixed for probably quite a while. Yeah, and I mean, see, watching a movie where there's a lot of skill going on. Oh, yeah. I mean, the skill of... Right from, of course, Kowalski. He has a, he is a very, very skilled driver, which you see a lot throughout the movie. You see what he can do. But a lot of the other drivers around him are also very skilled. The motorcycle cops from mm-hmm. the very beginning. They, <laughs> they, the, the amount of wobbling they do as he's like gently trying to like push them off the road just a little bit. And yeah. they're like wobbling back and forth and they stay up, they stay upright. Like, yeah, there's a lot of skill going on. And the way that the California cops do the barricade and all that kind of stuff, again, it's very skilled. If we had seen that level of skill from the officials mm-hmm. in Mad Max, I think the movie may have turned out quite a bit different. Yeah. So go looking back on Vanishing Point, if you had to pick a favorite part oh. of Vanishing Point. I would have to say the beginning slash the end. Yeah. Yes. That the the barricade, the barricade. Um, in the beginning, he turns away from the barricade. In the end, he doesn't. I think that was my favorite part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I say I didn't really know what to think about. Like when the fir- movie first started, and those first opening minutes is just a couple of caterpillar tractors, yes, rolling down this main street road, and I'm like, what are we looking at here? Right. I I didn't think that the tractors had anything to do with anything. Mm-hmm. I thought they were just 
there for to give us something to look at while some cops came through town. Yeah. And we were going to find out where the cops were going. But then I'm like, oh, that's the point of this scene is those tractors. Yeah, I love the... They get to a certain point in the road and you and see drop. one shovel drop with a clunk and then another shovel drop with a clunk. And I'm like, oh, it's a barricade. Yeah, okay. the setup was pretty cool. And it, then, was, it was slow. It took, I, what, maybe three or four minutes Oh yeah. of just driving through the town. I'm glad we aren't doing this movie minute by minute. I was actually... That first week would have been... Would have been kind of tough. I, I, I think this actually would be a good minute by minute movie. I think there was a lot of little things that that we noticed during the movie mm-hmm. that we have not mentioned on microphone. One thing that because really stood out to many. me, <laughs> like my favorite part of the movie was probably an amalgamation of all of the amazing landscape shots that we saw. The yes. variety of locales that we go through. And one of the things that went through my mind as we were watching this is I wanted to stop and figure out where they are. Yes. It was interesting to look at my phone every once in a while and like try and figure out where they were. Mm -hmm. And which is how we realized that he did some funky things. Yeah. (laughs) Like he went way further south than he needed to. But hey, he got lost. He admitted he was lost. Yeah. I, I loved the landscapes. Yep. Some gorgeous shots in this movie. Yes. Is there anything in this movie that stands out to you as something you didn't like? Oh, didn't like. Oh, okay. I might have to think about that one for a minute or two. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't like it during the movie, and I actually said something to you, and it still is something. Okay, so we get the scene where the, the gang of good old boys uh, take over the radio station, and uh, they beat the engineer probably to death, and they coerce uh, Super Soul into giving out bad information. A little while later, there is a scene where so the name of the radio station, like the call letters of the radio station, are K O W something. I don't know what the fourth call letter is. Yeah. Um, so we come back to the radio station a little while later, and someone has hung a banner turning the K O W into Kowalski, and they've. They've boarded up the walls or the windows and they bring Super Soul back to the radio station. He's got a new engineer and he goes back on the air, like just like, you know, Super Soul is back. Mm. And it's Sunday morning at this point, which is pretty close to the end of the movie. The end of the movie is at 10.04. So Sunday morning, things are starting to ramp up to the finale. What I didn't like is getting the last time we saw the radio station, it was being taken over and destroyed. And then we see them bringing Super Soul back. I would have liked one more scene in there showing us how they got rid of the good old boys mm-hmm. and how they got the radio station back. Because I, I have this idea in my head that it was the townspeople. Good old boys don't hang around, though. Good old boys, they get in, they you smash, think they and just then they abandoned scatter. it? Yeah, I think that's... That's a little disappointing. That's... Well, good old boys are disappointing. Yes. Because that's true. they're yeah. destructive. And they're destructive and they cowardly. They gang up, they destroy, and then they run. Yeah. So like you they think they just ran away? Yeah. They don't Yeah. I I like the idea of the townspeople like saying, No. Mm-hmm. This is our radio station. You're not going to do this. Get out. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been very good to see. Yeah. But yeah, we didn't we didn't get anything like that. I think my least favorite part of the movie is actually the part with the faith healers. 
Mm. I feel like it went on way too long. Yeah. I feel like there was no payoff because we get introduced to the prospector. He's collecting snakes. Okay. And he trades the snakes for his supplies. So he shows up to the faith healer and he's like, hey, here's a basket full of snakes. I want supplies. And the guy who's at the head of the faith healers is like, yeah, we don't want snakes anymore. And he just takes the basket and he empties out all of these snakes. I mean, still gives the prospector some gasoline and whatnot. But it's like, how easy would it have been to eliminate the faith healers altogether and just have the prospector out there collecting snakes because, you know, he makes burritos out of them. I thought he was going to say he eats the snakes. Yeah. I mean, mean, snakes are decent eating. He picks up one rattlesnake, the one where he meets Kowalski. He's like, oh, look at this. This is a fat one. It was a fat one. It looks like you could butcher that up and have some good eating. I was expecting them to go back to his middle of the desert, you know, shack and he'll have a gas pump there or something like that. I just felt like the the faith healers was unnecessary and distracting. So that was my most favorite part. Yeah. Um, So what are your final thoughts about Vanishing Point? Would you recommend it to someone? Yes, I would. I would recommend it absolutely. Um, I I thought it was fun and interesting. Mm -hmm. I Thinking about Kowalski's arc, and I'm not really sure he had an arc. I think the point was, is that his life had already arced. Yeah. And we get little snippets of it. So we get a general sense of what his life arc was. And it was very interesting. And it had its ups and downs. And this is just the ending of his arc. Mm -hmm. So I I think it was a fun movie. There were, you know, great car chase scenes and meeting interesting people. But then there was some deeper things going on that made it fascinating to watch. Yeah. Yeah, so I would I highly recommend it. I, I really enjoyed it. I I would agree with you wholeheartedly. I would recommend this movie to pretty much anyone who loves cars, anyone who likes travel. If you like road trip movies, this is an excellent example of that type of genre. And it's so simple. It doesn't, like, you can read into it deeply if you want, but you don't necessarily have to. you don't have to. It's an awesome movie. If you were putting together a playlist of movies to have on in the background and you want them to be car themed, like throw Vanishing Point in there. Because like I said, there are some amazing shots. There's some excellent driving. There are stunts that they pull in this movie that (laughs) you look at them and you're like, what, how, why that should not work. Right. And it was a blast to watch. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think at the end of the day, I think Kowalski, he spent this entire movie chasing adrenaline highs and taking amphetamines and like speeding up his system. And then when he reaches the end of the movie, like right before he reaches that barricade, he kind of has that little bit of a smile and the, the reflections are casting on his face. It's almost like death is that last rush that he's yet to experience Yeah. after a lifetime as a police officer and a war veteran and a racer of cars and motorcycles. Like this is the last big thing. And he just goes out in a blaze of glory. It's an amazing film. And I'm so glad it was suggested to us to watch it because I, I don't think I ever would have watched it otherwise. No, I, I don't think it would have come across my radar at all otherwise. And I gotta say, knowing how the movie ends, I wouldn't have any qualms watching it again. I feel no. like this is a movie you can watch over and over again, and you're probably going to notice details. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, there are moments where I looked away from the screen to fiddle with something and whatnot. This is not the kind of movie where you need to be watching every moment 
of the movie to catch every detail, but there are details in there to catch for sure. Yes. So. Yeah, so I, I agree that it's definitely rewatchable. So I hope you have enjoyed this hiatus episode of the Mad Max Minute podcast. We will be back next week. In the meantime, you can check out our website, which is madmaxminute.com. Follow us on Twitter at Mad Max Minute. Like us on Facebook and join our listeners page, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. Thank you.